Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, and I know you enjoy the Girl Dad Discussion Podcast, I'm your host, Ernest James, and I believe the relationship between a daughter and her father is one of the most important relationships a young lady can have. And therefore, my mission is to promote the daddy-daughter relationship by sharing the voices of girl dads to the world. So check out our podcast on every platform where podcasts can be listened to. And if you want to watch the podcast, check us out on our YouTube channel. Again, that's the Girl Dad Discussions Podcast with your host, Ernest James. Are you Are you looking for inspiration? Are you Are you looking for inspiration on a daily basis? Well, check out Deal to Heal Tees. With our inspirational tees, you're sure to find something that will inspire you. Just go to dealtoheeltees.myshopify.com. That's Deal to Heal Tees. Put some inspiration in your situation. Wear inspirational tea and be inspired all day. That's Deal to Heal Tees at dealtoheeltees.myshopify.com. Hey guys, this is Ernest James, host of the Deal to Heal with E. James podcast. And I got a question to ask you. Could you buy me a cheeseburger? Better yet, could you buy me a value meal? Yes? Well, guess what? I don't need a value meal. However, for the cost of a value meal, you can support this podcast to keep us on the air. Just go to Patreon slash Deal to Heal podcast and choose any one of the three tiers that's available. And if you just want to make a one-time donation, go to Cash App. And make a donation to dollar sign E James, the number 418. Make a one time donation to the Cash App, or again, go to Patreon to support this podcast and keep us on the air. Thanks in advance. Be blessed. Welcome to Heal to Heal with E. James Podcast. On this podcast, my guest and I will discuss topics and ways to help us to heal in every area of our lives. I believe that everyone can live a life that is happy, healthy, and whole. So I'm on a mission to help people to deal, heal, and fulfill. Deal with your problem, heal from the pain, and fulfill your purpose. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Deal to Heal with E. James podcast. I am your host, Ernest James, and I believe that everyone should and could live a life that is whole, healed, and healthy. And therefore, I'm on a mission to help people to deal, to heal, and to fulfill, to deal with your problems, to heal from the pain, Mm -hmm. and to fulfill your purpose. Thank you guys once again for tuning in to the Deal to Heal with E. James podcast. If you haven't already, make sure that you listen like, subscribe, and share to our uh, you to our podcast on all of your social media platforms, our our YouTube channel, as well as our podcast listening um, platforms. Also, make sure you guys check out our partner podcast, which is the Girl Dead Discussions podcast with E. James, myself as your host. Um, again, we are on YouTube as well as all of your social media listening platforms. Also, I will tell you guys how you can win $100 from the podcast, but you got to stay until the end in order (laughs) to get that information. So again, today, like any other day, I usually would say any other day, we are blessed with a guest, but today we are blessed with two guests, Dr. Barry and Mr. Keith. How are both of you guys doing? Very good. Thank you. We're well and happy to be with you. Good, good, good. First of all, let me say thank you guys for being here because you could have been doing anything else with anybody else, but you guys are here with me, uh, with me and my listeners. So I definitely appreciate you guys being here. Um, so do me a favor, uh, both of you guys, introduce yourselves uh, to my audience and tell us who you are and what it is that you do. Sure. What I do now is easy to describe. I'm retired. 
but I retired about eight years ago and I was a psychiatrist in an inner city area. The hospital I was director at was St. Joseph's in Yonkers. And I was very involved in both direct patient care as we're gonna talk about tonight and also with uh, broader issues of policy related to people with serious mental illness as president of the New York State Psychiatric Association and as the chairman of the New York State um, Mental Health uh, Council. Keith All can right. introduce. All right, thank you, Dr. Barry. Uh, Keith? Yeah, hello, I'm, I'm Keith Kniff and um, I worked with um, uh, Barry for many years. I was his patient for a number of years and um, it was uh, to say the least a um, unpredictable ride um, that thankfully ended well, luckily, um, because I think in the type of illness that I was dealing with, I, I have to say you, ha you need a little bit of luck to totally heal from it. Um, it. It's not something that's easy to kind of take a linear look at and then, you know, it goes the way you want it to go. Um, because I think, Ernest, you, you know, as you know, in terms of the healing process, it doesn't happen in a clear way all the time. Right. Um, and I think that happened with me. Um, and uh, it was it was no I mean, it was uh, the relationship that I have with Barry um, in that clinical context was one of the most important relationships I've had in my life um, because it kind of was the foundation um, that was that both helped added stability for me, but also provided a foundation for me to kind of grow. Um, and so now I, I'm. So now I'm a social worker. Um, I work at a VA hospital in Montrose, New York. Um, I, uh, I'm the chief of social work there. Uh, I'm also an adjunct professor at Fordham University in the Graduate School of Social Service. Um, so I was, as I was saying before, when we were talking earlier, I think if, if uh, Barry and myself had seen that this would be the, uh, the end, that this would be the result, we would have really been um, very happy. Um, so it makes me very happy that um, I've been able to get to this point. Um, and, you know, as Barry was saying, I'm still in treatment. Um, the treatment is not as intensive. Uh, you know, I don't see providers very frequently. But um, I still have periods of time where my mood is a little bit unsteady um, or depressed. But um, I've gotten to the point where I'm able to kind of work, work with it in a way um, and help myself, you know, move through things. You know, one of the things I would just interject before we get into the details of our long, long, long relation is how courageous I think Keith is in coming forward and talking about these things publicly. I don't know of another um, duo of doctor and patient uh, with this kind of background of serious illness um, who have collaborated on an article and are speaking together uh, where we can to tell our story. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that interests me as, as we, when we met was the, the dynamic of, of you guys' story, like beginning and end, you know? And so um, you said, uh, Keith, you mentioned that had you guys knew that this would be, you know, the outcome, you know, it would made the, I guess the beginning even more exciting, you know. So, yeah. just uh, as much as you're willing to share, you know, just tell us a little bit about how this journey even started, you know, with you guys even meeting in the first place. You know what I'll say is that I retired on my 70th birthday eight years ago, and it ended a very nice career, and it gave me a chance to write a book about what I had done professionally and why I had gone into psychiatry, my grandmother's mental illness, and so on. And I had no contact with any of my patients after I retired. And then one day, I was driving along. My wife was driving the car. We're going to Boston. I happened to look at my Amazon website, and there was the nicest review from my former patient, Keith. So I broke my rule, and I called him. Hmm. And first of all, I said, How'd you find this book? It had no public relations, no advertising, no nothing, but somehow he happened on. It. 
And then we talked further and he caught me up on what he had been doing. And as we spoke, we realized there was an opportunity to collaborate on something which might not only be inspirational to others, might give others some insight into the process. And I'm gonna diverge from Keith here. He thinks it would have been great if we had known the outcome in the beginning. It wouldn't have been the same kind of an adventure and it never is. Part of what makes practicing psychiatry so interesting is you don't know where it's going sometimes and you don't know the outcome. And you have to work hard at it in collaboration with your patient. And then you cross your fingers and you hope that what you're doing works. And in this case, we've come up with a very, very hopeful story. And maybe it's a good point for Keith to talk a little bit about how he came to be referred to me by his primary care doctor uh, during the spring of his freshman year of college at Fordham. Yes, I, um, <clears throat> I went to, to college at Fordham University, which is a college um, which is basically smack dab in the middle of the Bronx. Um, it's also not far from where I grew up. I grew up pretty close to there, a little bit north of there. And um, Fordham University, uh, one way to look at Fordham University is if you're on Fordham Road, it's really um, an urban environment, um, very, very busy. Um, it's uh, the type of place that is probably not a great, great idea to be out that late at night by yourself. Um, but... As soon as you go into Fordham, it's like it being in another world. It's like a pastoral environment. It's very peaceful, pretty quiet. So it really is a contrast to the area around it. But um, very shortly after I, I got into college, it was literally within the first few weeks when I got into college, I started having this feeling about me. That, and I, know, I, I remember saying to myself, this doesn't feel like me. Something is off. Um, and I didn't right away, I didn't think of depression or psychiatric illness right away. Um, but there was one day, and I distinctly remember this, I was walking to my car. I used to commute to the campus, you know, mm -hmm. because I live you know, not far from there. Um, and I was going to the parking lot. And on, on the way to the parking lot is basically probably like the centerpiece building of the campus called Keating Hall. It's the largest building there. It was a building where I had several classes in over the years. And um, it was basically like a square building. And then in the middle was a clock, a clock tower kind of rose up. Um, and as I was passing by there one day, I, I looked up. It, it was this block was very tree lined. Um, and I remember being right in front of Keating Hall. I looked up through the trees and I could see the sun. It was a nice day out. And I could see the sun through the, through the leaves a little bit. And I just had this dreadful feeling like I just realized there was this dreadful, um, awful feeling that just had come over me. And um, I remember thinking to myself right away after I had that, I said, you know, now I know why people decide to kill themselves. It was that bad. Um, I never had had a feeling like that before. You know, we're all depressed a little bit at times, but yeah. this was something totally um, the, 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 the gravity of it was just so intense that I, I really had the insight right away. Like I could actually see how someone might want to take their life. And, you know, I grew up in a Catholic household. It wasn't a strict Catholic household, but um, when you grow up in a Catholic house household, you don't kill yourself. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it, you know, Catholics actually have a low rate of suicidality, which you might know. Um, so, and then I had, had another thought right after that. And it was that I had this strange intuition and unfortunately it turned out to be true. I said, this feels like it's going to be with me for a long time. Something about it felt like it wasn't going to go away very soon. And that kind of added to the hopelessness because there was this feeling that I had that I've never had before. And now I was thinking this feels like I'm not going to be able to get rid of this. Um, so it was a very frightening um, experience a very disorienting experience i think that was something about um when i first became ill i was very disoriented and i don't mean disoriented in like a cognitive way so much mm -hmm. i mean disoriented in that like my whole way of looking at the world experiencing the world was upended by this 
And it so, just felt like a momentous kind of experience. Keith um, went to the Student Health Center at his university, saw a therapist there. He also was in touch with his primary care doctor. And sometime before he was referred to me, he had been started on a course of antidepressant medications because the therapy didn't seem to be enough. And so what I remember, and I have the advantage of notes, Keith just has memory, uh, but that may be better. Uh, I remember a very nice, very attractive young man coming into my office, very articulate. He was describing a sense of indecisiveness, emptiness, disenchantment. And what was interesting is, as a psychiatrist, when you evaluate people for depression, you also ask not only about the feelings they know they're having, but about kind of everyday things. And Keith at that point was having trouble sleeping. And although he doesn't remember it, he had reported about a 25 pound weight loss. So from my perspective, I thought here's a young man, not unusual in adolescence, dealing with starting college, feeling depressed, hoping for a girlfriend. It didn't sound terribly unusual. And I continued to, um, with the course of antidepressants that his doctorate started, I adjusted the dose. And then over time, things became challenging because nothing seemed to really be taking hold. We went through a series of medication changes over the next year. We talked about issues in Keith's life. He couldn't tolerate the medicines. They weren't effective. And at some point, there was a sense that the usual approaches that a psychiatrist would take just weren't being effective. And as Keith had put it when he came in, he was hoping for a quick fix. He hoped the medication would work. He was glad I was willing to continue trials of medication. And I think we shared a sense of disappointment um, that things weren't effective despite our continuing trials of different alternatives. Uh, at that point, and I think Keith can describe it better than I, he was drinking some, he was beginning to be obsessive in his thinking. Um, things were spiral, beginning to spiral downhill. And perhaps he could share a bit about that period. Yeah, I think, you know, what was, what was really frustrating to me was when, uh, Barry would prescribe a medication or a combination of medications. And after about like a six week trial, um, it was disappointing that it didn't work. Um, or sometimes, as he said, we didn't, we, we didn't get to a full trial of medication because I didn't um, tolerate them very well. That was part of the picture. I didn't tolerate medicine very, very well. So he had to move around, you know, his prescribing sort of um, strategy a little bit. Um, because on one hand, I, I, it was hard for me to tolerate the medicines. And then on the other, even when I was able to tolerate them, they didn't seem to be able to really contain the illness enough. And that was, um, that was, that was uh, very concerning to me because I said to myself, you know, I've been in therapy now for a while. Uh, I've been on a number of different medications for a while. Um, I still feel very unstable. Uh, I have a hard time being around people. I have no sex drive. Um, that 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 ideal when I came into college that I wanted to have a girlfriend that that was gone. Um, and I just felt like you know where is this going to end? It was really a very frightening and kind of hopeless feeling. Um, it was about a year after we started seeing each other. Um, Keith was, in addition to the depression uh, and little moments of euphoria, also beginning to be paranoid. And it was around that time, about a year after we first met, that Keith had his first uh, psychiatric hospitalization. And there were to be six more after that. And I think it would be interesting for people to hear a little bit about the perception of what it's like to be admitted to a psychiatric unit because people have a lot of 
very negative connotations and thoughts about what must, that must be like. Yeah, I, I remember um, around that time, I remember thinking that, uh, you know, Barry had mentioned, I, I started to develop some paranoia. And I remember saying to myself, like, this is really not me. Um, my problem primarily has been with my mood. But now I was starting to feel paranoid. And um, thankfully, that didn't turn out to be a, a symptom that I had on an ongoing basis. Um, but I did end up in the hospital several times. Um, and I was, uh, I, I willingly went to the hospital. Um, I don't think, and maybe Barry would know better. I don't think I was, ever, was I ever hospitalized uh, uh, like two PC or anything like that? I, I don't think no. so. No. I think I was voluntary every time. Um, two PC is when someone is out of control and under New York state law, either considered an imminent danger to themselves or others. And the state gives psychiatrists or other doctors the authority to retain them for evaluation. Yeah. So I don't think I, I ever had that. Um, my admissions were always voluntary, but I was really in bad shape. Um, and Interestingly enough, one thing that actually brought me a kind of strange sense of solace was that when I went on to the unit for the first time on an inpatient psychiatry unit, I remember thinking to myself, um, this is not what I expected. It, it, was, it was much more kind of placid and subdued than I had expected. I thought I was going to go on to a unit and there was going to be people who were agitated, angry, hitting each other, fights all over the place. You know, I had, I had the, the, you know, one floor of the cuckoo's nest perspective on things. <clears throat> but it really didn't turn out to be that way at all. And I, I, I've always said in my, in my, uh, in this long journey I've had, you know, when I went on to the inpatient units, the, 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 the staff, the, the, the overwhelming number of staff were very, very good um, to me when I was there. Um, and uh, there was actually one nurse who I kind of formed a, a good relationship with. We kind of had a good, very good rapport. And she was very, very helpful when I was having those periods where I was like paranoid and agitated and really overwhelmed. She was she was really good at relating to me during those 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 times. Um, so I kind of formed a bond with her. Um, and then, of course, uh, Barry would Barry would visit me <clears throat> while I was in the hospital. You know, he'd come there with visit me, obviously check see how I'm doing. And then also, uh, you know, um, uh, write his prescriptions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the psychiatric, of all the things, it's, it's kind of strange. The psychiatric ward was really not a bad experience for me in, in the sense that the yeah. environment really wasn't problematic. It was more in me. I was, I was just sick. It, it was during Keith's third hospital admission that he had his first electroconvulsive therapy treatment. And I think it's important perhaps to just say a little bit about electroconvulsive therapy because it gets kind of a bad rap. Um, and what it is, is the application of electricity to the brain. We don't really know why it works, but for many people with intractable depressions or paranoid depression, it can often be um, the most important treatment which can begin to turn things around and reverse what has been up to that point a uh, kind of refractory illness. And over the next number of years, Keith was hospitalized a number of times at St. Joseph's. He had one longer stay at a local uh, academic hospital. They also gave him ECT. And by the end of it all, Keith had had a very, very large number, an unusually large number of ECT treatments, uh, over 40. But it also had begun to reverse the depression, reverse the paranoia, and begin to let Keith uh, begin to feel a more control of his life. And once that happened, then there were additional milestones. And maybe Keith can say a little bit about how things felt as they began to turn around. And then we can talk about some of the steps uh, that we took in order to help him gain a more independent and adult life over the next years. Yeah, I think, um, first of all, uh, you know, as Barry was saying, ECT 
was a very um, helpful treatment to me. Um, I thought the thing that, that it did, it didn't necessarily, it, it didn't necessarily make everything better. But the one thing that it did that I, that I distinctly remember was that for the first time in like several years, I had just a little peak that this might be able to get better. And that was really important because I hadn't had that. Remember, as I, t as I said earlier, I, come be I become kind of hopeless. I was paranoid. Medicines weren't working. There's a lot going wrong. But then ECT gave me a little bit of a peek into the future. I said, you know what? This might um, has a possibility of maybe getting better. And that was, you know, that wasn't just important in terms of my symptoms or my overall illness. It was important, I think, psychologically as well, mm -hmm. because I hadn't had a sense that this was something that was going to get better. It was always like, I don't know what the end of, is, <clears throat> end of this is going to be, but I don't know what's going to happen. But with, with ECT, it kind of, it, it, it just gave me a little bit, just enough of a peak of hope. Um, and, you know, as Barry said, who knows what it did to my brain, but it did something and it kind of sensitized me a little bit more to the, uh, where it kind of brought, my mood was always very, whether it, whether it was depressed or whether it was swinging, it was always kind of very rigid. Like it was in like its own sort of pattern. And one of the things that ECT did, I think, I think it broke, broke me out of the pattern enough, um, to give me, a uh, you know, a, a, a glimpse, a glimpse of hope that this might get better. And then after that, as, as Barry, uh, uh, we, Barry did, decided to continue. Most of my ECT treatments happened in the hospital, but then after that, he, we started to do ECT treatments on an outpatient basis. Okay. Uh, you know, one thing I have to say in the article that we wrote together was um, entitled, Here Comes Jimi Hendrix. And the reason it was titled that is as Keith began to be a little better uh, and I began to realize he had a pretty good sense of humor uh, before he would get the anesthesia in the operating room prior to the ECT, he'd kind of smile and say, here comes Jimi Hendrix. And so it, it wasn't an entirely um, unpleasant experience for him. But what was critical was, and I think we'll, uh, develop it this way, as Keith began to have his course begin to turn around just a bit, he was referred to a day treatment program. So he'd go there five days a week, later on less frequently during the week. A big step, and I think people may find this hard to appreciate, he had always shared a room with his brother who was just a year younger. And at some point after he was beginning to do better, he was able to move to his own room across the hall in his family's home. And that wouldn't seem like a big deal to most of us, but it was a big deal to Keith and a big sign of movement, which led then to other um, progress where he moved into supportive housing, then into his own apartment with others, and then into his own. And maybe he can give us some sense of what that progression was like for him as he gained independence and became uh, a more self-sustaining adult. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when, when I left, um, when, I, when I left the bedroom and moved into the other one, which was no more than probably 20 feet away, um, I don't, I don't actually remember thinking, well, this is, this is gonna, this is a big move for me. This is going to be you know, a big thing. It's going to be healing for me. I don't remember thinking that consciously, but I think looking back on it, I was probably doing it a little bit out of my awareness. And that was my, 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 my start in, in many ways to being kind of independent and, and kind of, a, kind of moving towards healing um, in a way that was really going to be um, sustaining. It was right around that time where things start and I when I look if I could pick one thing I did that kind of really helped me turn the corner it would probably be that that I went into my own room because then after that as I was in my own room for a little while and as Barry said I moved out to an apartment where I lived with a few other guys um, I eventually got a job then I um, I moved to my own apartment 
Um, and so it had a ripple effect in a way that um, I, I don't even remember consciously thinking, but um, it probably had something to do with me. Like that was kind of my way of just getting started. Um, you know, I think it's a good point to also say when you're dealing with a patient or the patient's dealing with their therapist, family is always in the room, even though they're not really there, they're haunting it. And Keith's dad was a pretty heavy drinker. And before one of his early hospitalizations, Keith had been on a tear himself. And one time had actually thrown a chair in my office. It was the only time I ever saw in my notes that he did anything violent. But Keith, to his enormous credit, uh, realized the potential downside for alcohol for him. And he stopped drinking. And so I think that speaks again to the nexus of alcohol, psychiatric illness, drugs. Uh, they're all boiling together in a pot. And one of the things that enabled Keith to move forward and begin to turn things around and then progress was that he absolutely stepped back from alcohol. Uh, and that, that was just very, very important. The other interesting thing, and maybe Keith can explain a little bit, I've never understood it, Despite all of this, he graduated from his college class on time, which I thought was amazing. And then at some point he came into my office, he said, I wanna be a social worker. Mm. And I said, oh, and we spent a lot of time talking about it because my thought was if he started to become a therapist himself and deal with people with serious mental illness, it might have a very destabilizing effect on him. Ultimately, it's the patient's choice. Keith and I talked a great deal about it, and we decided to go with it, and I was supportive of it, and I think he always knew that if things became challenging there, he could come back and gain support, just as when he moved into a new room and then out of his folks' house into his own apartment, his parents were very supportive. So none of this is in this thing alone. We're in it with our families. We're in it with people who care about us, coworkers. There's a community that surrounds all of us. And it would be interesting to hear Keith talk a little bit about those supports. Yeah, I think um, I think one way that I was lucky, I, I did have a family that was very supportive of me. And um, as, as you mentioned, I mean, my dad did have a problem with alcohol. Um, but fortunately for us, he was not like a violent alcoholic. You know, he didn't come home berating us or abusing us. He was never he, he would become he would become more withdrawn when he would drink. Um, but that said, he was a very loving father. He was very affectionate to myself and my brother, which was not common in men his age um, at that time. Uh, my mother was also very affectionate. So my, myself and my brother, we knew we were loved. Uh, you know, there was some dysfunction in there. But through it all, we did know we were loved. Um, and I think that that really did help. Um, and there was one, there was one time, maybe a few years earlier, I'm not sure if Barry would remember this, but there were times where I talked to him and I thought that my, I, I talked to him about thinking that my family is going to abandon me in some way that, you know, if I became really ill and didn't know what I was doing and I was really mentally ill, that they would just, you know, not want to have anything to do with me. And that was really, I'm looking back on it. That was a real distortion because my family just wouldn't do that. I, I know them well enough. They might have trouble with it. They were very stressed out with it, which is understandable. Um, but they're not the type of people that would just flat out abandon me. Um, in, so fact, that, in fact, Keith's father was my partner in fighting with the mental health system. I think anyone who's tried to deal with hospitals, clinics, mental health centers know that it, it can be a fight. Keith's dad had good health insurance because he was an executive uh, with a large corporation. And then the challenge was getting access to what he was entitled to. And when I look back at my records, when we started to talk about doing the piece together, a third of the paper in my files was appeals for treatment for Keith, getting permission for more visits, allowing ECT visits, and treatment. So part of what a family and a professional do together 
in addition to actual treatment, is trying to just overcome the obstacles which the system puts in front of uh, necessary care. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, yeah, my dad played a very important role because um, early on, I remember relatively early on, uh, not long after I'd, I'd first started seeing Barry and I was taking medications and you know and all of that, um, I remember I got to the point where I was a little anxious because I was saying to myself, you know, I, I, this this may end up costing my my mom and dad a lot of money, and um, I brought it up with my dad. Um, I was always open to psychiatric treatment. You know, I, I always I was always fine with seeing a therapist, but I did express to him some anxiety. I said, you know, Dad, this is this could end up costing a lot of money. Um, you know, me going to see a doctor for psychiatric reasons and all the medicines and all the rest of it. And he just said something very, very um, simple to me, which really um, was very comforting. I guess that would be the word. He simply said, Keith, you'll get what you need. And I, I just I, I distinctly remember him saying that to me. Um, it was one of the best things he ever said to me because you know, I had, I had a, you know, you know, serious psychiatric illness. And then on top of that, I was worrying about the cost. And he took that away from me, that, that, that anxiety about the cost. And I think that was really important. Um, and it really sent a message to me that uh, it was kind of like sending a message to me, like, we're in this together. Um, that's how it is. You know, one of the things that is interesting, and I think, um, because when we were introducing ourselves to Ernest at the beginning, he told us he uh, was a pastor. And I think one of the things people might be interested in, Keith and I talked a lot about many different things in therapy, as you would with an adolescent and someone re-engaging with the world. He talked about how he had been bullied we talked about dating, we talked about women, we talked about independence, but therapy had its limits. And as Keith said, he was brought up in a Catholic household. And in addition to therapy, what I think was very interesting and important for Keith is that he, sought, he sought spiritual counseling. And I think perhaps uh, Ernest and the listeners might be interested some in how that fitted into the whole jigsaw puzzle of recovery for Keith. Yeah, I think, um, you know, therapy is like anything else. Um, it has its limits. You know, there's, it, it, it's great and it was very helpful for me. It was the right context for me to heal. Because um, I, I can't, if I didn't have therapy, I, I really, I, I can't even imagine what would have happened. Um, and luckily I was, a, I was a relatively reflective person um, so I think therapy was a good context for me to heal. But as I said, it, it has its limits. And, and, and I started thinking to myself, you know, one of the limits I think of therapy is that that in-depth kind of spiritual direction um, is something that is not going to be able to get enough. Um, it's going to be it's going to get short shrift in a way because therapy regardless of what it is, it's, it's very um, kind of emotionally and behaviorally oriented. It's not that oriented towards spirituality. Um, so what I decided was, and this, and it's ironic that I, at, by this time I had done really, really well. And it was interesting by the time I, I, I had really done a lot of healing, was doing really well. That was the time where I recognized the limits of therapy um, after it had helped me so much. Um, so then I, um, I pursued spiritual direction with um, uh, one one person I had was a was a uh, an elderly elderly non Jew. She was about 75, 80 years old. Um, I saw her for a few years, um, and I really uh, I really appreciated her feedback. Um, and she was very understanding about the psychiatric end too. Like she was really um, she was really supportive of the fact that. Um, I had the psychiatric end that I was taking care of. And she also was understanding that I was also feeling that maybe the psychiatric end had its limits. So now I was coming to her for help with something that was not necessarily within the realm of therapy. Um, but the good thing I think with that Barry did was he, he did, when I brought up the subject, he did, he did try and talk it through with me. You know what I mean? He didn't say, you know, that's not something we talk about here. 
you know, go see a spiritual director. Some therapists actually do that. Um, mm -hmm. So he kind of, uh, I think he, he was doing his best with that. Um, and I think that, you know, we're, we're of different religious backgrounds. He's, he's Jewish. Um, and he just had, I hope he's had a happy new year. He just had a new year. Um, and then of course I'm Catholic, as I said. Um, and on the surface, it might seem like, well, uh, Keith probably went to spiritual direction because we, we were different religious backgrounds. Um, but I, I don't think it was that. I think it was more me realizing the limits of therapy itself. And then thinking to myself, you know what, maybe spiritual direction is something that I want to that's going to help me take into account a part of my life that therapy may not, therapy might touch upon, but it might not be able to go as in depth about. Um, so I think that turned out to be a good move. Um, unfortunately, my first spiritual director, she passed away maybe about three or four years after I've seen her. Um, I went to her um, ceremony and, and everything. So that was, that was good. Um, I, um, and then I, I, uh, I also saw another spiritual. You know, just to interject for a second. One of the things Keith achieved during this whole time is he lost his dad. He lost a spiritual director, as he mentioned. Uh, I believe you were on a trip to Hawaii for spiritual yeah. purposes when another spiritual director passed away. And one of the things he had achieved was being able to handle loss. He could feel loss. He could feel sadness. He could feel emptiness but not be totally thrown by it. And that was really a marker of what we had worked on and achieved together yeah. for him. Yeah, I think that was, I think that's right. I think the way that I sort of cope with those things was, was a marker for how much I, I had um, uh, gotten better. Yeah, I, I, I really uh, enjoy this conversation and it, it's hit on a lot of different things. Um, and, and I just want to touch on a couple of myself because some of the things that I did uh, connect with. Um, one of the things when we were just talking about the the spiritual uh, support, you know, as well as the, the therapeutic support, that's one of the things that I'm very um, supportive of myself. You know, I and I tell people even the Bible says first natural, then spiritual, you know, and I say it does, it's not one or the other. It's both. You know, and they work hand in hand together, you know, because everything is not uh, a spiritual, um, everything is not a spiritual battle, you know, and there are some things you can't pray away, you know what I mean? Some things you got to go to therapy for, you got to get the, the support that you need. And even myself going through my own uh, depression that I had to deal with and suicidal ideation and all of that, one of the things that helped me get out of that space was going to bereavement support. You know, and that definitely helped me a whole lot to the point that I became a volunteer and I and I stayed even after my time was over. But I stayed there, you know, to help with the uh, run the program, you know, as other people came in. And I, I think that, you know, that's very important that we even mentioned that, that, you know, those two things go hand in hand, you know. And also one of the other things that you talked about earlier was about how you had your own uh, preconceived uh, ideas of what the the um, uh, the unit was going to look like when you went to to get treatment. You know, you was expecting one thing, but then it was something else. And I think that's another thing that we have to uh, come to terms with. With a lot of things that we deal with is our preconceived notions. You know, uh, one of the things I talk about now. Um, actually, we got a I got a talk coming up to to speak on it. I talk about suicidal ideations. And one of the things that I tell people that we have to deal with our own preconceived notions about suicide and people who die from suicide before we can even begin to relate to them, you know, because we already have our own thoughts of, you know, the kind of person that would do that, the kind of person that will have those thoughts, you know. And one of the things that I tell people that suicide is not even a conversation about death. It's a conversation about pain, you know. And it's because usually the person is going through such an amount of pain that it's not that they want to die. It's not that they're not thinking about their family members. It's not that they're not thinking about everything else. They just want to end the pain, you know? And so I think all of those different things, you guys hit on a lot of stuff. Um, and, I'm, and I'm very glad that you did. Um, I want you guys both to 
uh, have the last so say, you know, <laughs> as we come to a close to kind of give your last thoughts and, and leave the listeners with something, um, I don't know, inspirational or just informative, have you guys feel free to do. And then definitely leave your uh, social media handles or things like that, um, that, you know, our my listeners can can follow you guys. So I, I'll give you guys a couple of seconds to kind of think about that uh, real quick. Uh, to my listeners, um, first of all, thank you guys for 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 tuning in and still being here with us. Make sure you guys are definitely following us and checking out our websites, um, the dealhealfulfilled.org. That's dealhealfulfilled.org, which is our main website. And also go to our uh, ebooks by E. James website so you can uh, get the ebooks, check out the ebooks that I've written um, even there. Also, one of the things that I've been blessed to be a part of is a organization called the Forgiveness Mission. And what we do is have free virtual workshops every quarter of the year. Uh, and we talk about forgiveness, what it is, what it's not. Who is for you know forgiveness of self, forgiveness of others, and a host of other things regarding forgiveness. And um, that's actually uh, one of the things that we're having our first in-person event uh, within a couple of days, actually a couple of weeks at the time of recording this, where I will be talking about uh, suicide and suicidal ideations. And we're having a whole me, myself, and, and four other speakers uh, talking about that but you guys can definitely take part of the free virtual workshops again we have them every quarter of the year so whenever you're listening to this either one just passed or one is coming up <laughs> and so you can just go to forgivenessmission.com to check that out or you just go to eventbrite and look it up to uh, in order to register and uh mm -hmm. last but not least i told you guys at the beginning of the podcast, I will tell you how you can win $100 from the podcast. And you can win $100 by joining our super subscriber contest. What does that mean? You must first subscribe to our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, and our podcast on Spotify. After you've done those three things, text the word WIN, W-I-N, to the number 866-326-0730 to qualify to win $100. The contest is ongoing and is random. So once you're in, you're always in. You can always win. And uh, you don't have to do nothing else extra. So you guys can win $100 from the podcast uh, by joining our super subscriber contest. So once again, guys, uh, Dr. Barry, Keith, thank you guys so very much for uh, coming on and being my guest. I will let you guys have the last word. So the floor is yours. Keith, Keith go for it. Okay. All right. Um, first, you go um, first. First, Ernest, I want to say um, thank you for having us. Um, I think the fact that um, a former patient and a longtime psychiatrist and you, a host, are talking openly about mental illness, psychotherapy, uh, psychotropic medications, all those things, suicide. Yeah. We, I think we all know these were things that even just a few decades ago, people weren't doing things like this, talking openly to an audience about these type of things. And I think that, you know, I, I want to thank you for this, this type of forum, because we know that there was a time when the mentally ill were not given a forum at all. Um, and we're just kind of put in hospitals. And um, so I, I really appreciate that you gave, you gave us the opportunity um, to talk about these things. And um, I just want to say that I think that uh, Barry um, gave me a chance. He basically said, you know, we can't predict the future with Keith. I'm going to stick in there with him and then we'll see what happens. And, uh, and I think you can see what happened was very good in the end. So I'm very thankful to him. I'm thankful to the ECT. I'm thankful for psychiatric treatment in general. It's, it's an, as you said before, Sometimes you have to you have to combine it with spiritual direction. You can't just pray things away. Sometimes you need uh, help other, that's a little bit different than that to really help you reach your potential. So thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I also echo appreciation to you, Ernest, for giving us the forum and letting us tell our story together on your show to your listeners. The points I think we both want to make is people aren't throwaway people. You got to give everyone the best shot. Uh, 
The system doesn't make it easy, but you've got to hang in there and just keep trying because you don't know how it's going to turn out. And each of us has the right to reach the best potential we can. And none of us knows in the beginning of a process of recovery how long it's going to go and how well it's going to go. Whether someone's recovering from a stroke and learning to walk again, and a year later they might be walking a mile instead of 10 yards. In the same way with psychiatric illness, we don't know how far it'll go, how far people can go in achieving a fulfilling life with family and work. One of the things I'm going to take with me from this evening are your three words, heal. I guess it's deal, heal, and fulfill. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really summarizes uh, the three periods of the work that Keith and I did together. We had to deal with some real rough stuff in the first period. Once the corner was turned, then it was healing. And now Keith is leading a very fulfilling life. So we're grateful for the way it turned out. And uh, in any future presentations we do, I'm going to quote you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you guys very much for being on. I really you. enjoyed your story and the work that you guys do. Uh, to my listeners, make sure you guys check out the show notes. Uh, there are going to be some links there to um to the work that they've done together that I think is very interesting that you guys, if you definitely enjoyed the conversation, you would definitely enjoy uh, reading the work that they have done together. Again, thank you guys so very much. We can't end it no better than that. To my listeners, thank you guys for tuning in one more time to the Deal to Heal with E. James podcast, where our mission is to help people to deal, heal, and fulfill, to deal with their problems, to heal from the pain, and to fulfill their purpose. Until next time, you guys be blessed. Hey guys, I know you're enjoying the podcast. However, don't forget to join our text line at 866-326-0730. That's 866-326-0730 in order to receive text messages with new events and things that is going on and new episodes as they release. All right. See you in a minute. Thanks for listening to the Deal to Heal with E. James podcast. Remember to listen, like, subscribe, and share. This episode has been brought to you by Deal to Heal Teas. Put some inspiration in your situation. Wear an inspirational tea and be inspired all day. Let's go to dealtoheelteas.myshopify.com. Remember, our mission is to help you to deal, heal, and fulfill. Deal with your problem. Heal from the pain and fulfill your purpose. Thanks for listening.